Hello, Sunday School! Yeah! Are you guys out there or what? Yeah, you are. Last time we gave, remember last time we gave out an on-time award? You guys remember that? You guys are all on time. Give yourself a hand. Because I know every single Sunday, Sunday School ends up being filled by all the slackers that come in late. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm not a slacker. <laughs> All right, as you're finishing getting your, your bagels, there must be something good over there. Turn into your Bibles. This month we're talking about Bible conundrums, difficult, hard passages in the Bible, but with the emphasis that the Bible is amazing. The Bible is our friend. The Bible is the Word of God. It's the best thing that we have to understand who he is. So turn into your Bibles. Um, we're going to turn to Psalms 18. And also while you're doing that, why don't you meet the people at your table? Make sure you know their names. If uh, you see somebody sitting by themselves, invite them to your table. Meet the people over there just real quick. Today is supposed to be 81 degrees. Isn't that nice? There's a, uh, you guys realize it's Mother's Day, right? It's one of those things you say and then someone bolts out to go do something. <laughs> it's Mother's Day today. You could get your mother a car wash. The Mill Missions is doing car washes down at the World Prayer Center. Cambodia, Madagascar. Go get your, your car, your mom's car washed today. That would be cool. She'd like that. All right. Everybody say, shh. All right, this is Psalms 18. I'm going to read, did I say Proverbs? Psalms 18, sorry, Psalms 18, verse 28. And I'm going to read a couple of verses here. This is about, I just see it being about the word of God. You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. With your help, I could advance against a troop, and my God can scale a wall. With my God, I can scale a wall. Verse 30. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. Everybody say that. The word of the Lord is flawless. Yeah. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except for our God? Let's pray real quick. God, we just ask your presence here as the Mill Sunday School. Jesus, we invite you here, God. We just say, come Speak to our hearts, open our minds. As we talk about the Bible this morning, God, we just invite you to make the Word of God, your Bible, alive, living, a lamp unto us. And we praise you for that gift, Jesus. We honor you. We love you, Jesus. And everybody screamed. That was pretty good. <laughs> We're talking about the Bible, Bible conundrums, if you're looking at your notes right here. And my vision for Sunday school. If you've ever wondered what we're doing in here, my vision for the Mill Sunday School is, is to be a part of a training. That you come to New Life Church, and I believe, I've honestly never been to a church that I believe has better worship than New Life Church. Amen. I just think, I mean, we put out CDs for crying out loud, and I listen to the CDs in my car. I just can't get enough of it. 
Then we come and we get amazing preaching. And we preach the Bible here at New Life Church. And we give practical, great, godly, biblical sermons on a weekly basis. And I think Sunday school is another side of that where we get to learn. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, I love to learn. <laughs> I know you do. And, and as we learn, we're looking at scripture. We're looking at theology in the middle of Sunday school. Heck, we talk about church history. We talk about all kinds of stuff that are very related to who we are as Christians. But this isn't a sermon, right? This is a teaching. Do you see the whiteboard? That's the difference. If you ever wonder what the difference between a sermon and, and teaching is, that's the difference. If there's a whiteboard, it's teaching. If there's no whiteboard, it's a sermon. <laughs> That's the difference. And so the Mill Sunday School, I hope that you all in here are getting trained in some sort of way in order to bring out your training in the Bible, truth, theology, to other people in Colorado Springs, wherever you end up going, um, in your school, in your classes, at your job, that you'll just be more grounded and more full of knowledge. That's my vision. Isn't that a sweet vision? And so that's what I get to do. I get to carry out my vision. I'm the mill associate pastor. And so this morning, I want to talk about how we got the Bible. It's, it's the first question on your notes. And I think we can learn from the Bible what the Bible is by looking at its origin. Does that sound cool? How did we get the Bible? Think about it for a second. Does anyone know? Some of you might think, huh, yeah, where did we get the Bible from? Did the Bible come from God, coming God like handing it down to human beings and a bunch of angels, and then and then man just like grabbed this book and then just like started passing it around? Is that how we got the Bible? Some religions sort of believe that. We 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 would say that we did not get the Bible that way. But just to make note that the the Mormons, the Book of Mormon, um, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. Uh, supposedly, or really did, uh, I would say supposedly, found some gold plates in the ground and then pulled them out of the ground and then with an angel uh, translated these gold plates into the Book of Mormon. And so Joseph Smith has a book, uh, the Book of Mormon, and it's on his testimony and his testimony alone that he says, this angel gave me the translation of these gold plates that no one else has seen and, and then he, we have this book. The Bible's not like that. The Bible comes passed down through us, not from a hidden, mysterious place like that. The Quran, same kind of thing. The Quran, uh, Muhammad goes into a cave, prays and fasts, and supposedly hears the voice of God and writes it down. Is that how we got the Bible? No, not really. We didn't get the Bible that way. If you look at the history of the canon, you know what the word canon means? The canon just means uh, a rule or a book. You know what the word Bible means? Anybody? It just means book or books. The very first word in the book of Matthew in the New Testament is Biblos, Bible. And so have you ever been typing a Word document and you go to save it? What does it automatically save it as? The first word that's in the paper. And so maybe that's how we got the name Bible. Someone just saved as, and it's like, oh, the first word, Bible. That's what I think, by the way. <laughs> just kidding. So, and so you might think that the Bible has some sort of mysterious God handing this book down into the world and us just taking it as in the form it's in and saying, yes, this is the Bible. 
But that's not really how our God works. Our God works by speaking life into us in ways that you have to have faith in order to understand it. And so God allowed his words to be transcribed. Some people would say that some of the books are written by, you know, maybe some of the Psalms, that's God speaking directly. Some passages of Jeremiah and Ezekiel are God speaking directly and them writing down the words. But other books are pretty common, pretty just normal. I mean, you think about the, the books of the letters in like, let's just say Corinthians is a letter from Paul to the churches at Corinth. That's just a letter. It's my personal opinion that Paul probably didn't know that he was writing a book that was going to end up in the Bible. Have you ever thought about that? He was just writing a letter. And then we saw as the church and as all these churches all over Corinth and then as the letter got spread on, we realized, wow, God is speaking through these words. Let's continue to pass them down because we as the church believe that these are God's words. And then another church says the same exact thing. Then we come together and say, yes, isn't this letter amazing? Shouldn't it be part of the Bible? Shouldn't it be part of the canon of God's word? And we all as the church say, yes, this should be the Bible. And so early on in Christianity, that is how the Bible was chosen. That's kind of ordinary means, don't you think? Some people might think, oh, it, it was a guy, some dude that sat down and said, here's the list of all the books that are in the Bible. Not true. That's not how it happened. Some people might say, oh, a council sat down and said, here's all the books, here's all 66 books that should be in the Bible. Not really true. What is true is that a council sat down and said, yes, these books that the churches hold as true are, in fact, true. They've been council recognized, recognized by the council. But we get this book kind of from ordinary means. But it is no ordinary book. Amen? And so that is, I think that's just a testimony to how God works. God uses us, people like you and me, just normal, everyday people that hear the words of God, that listen to him, that maybe heard him audibly, or were just writing about his truths, and then God used that, and then told the church, spoke to the church and said, these are my words. This is going to be a book that is ordained from heaven. And so as, as, as I said last week, last week I kind of, I gave you six reasons why the Bible has to be the word of God, God and why it's true. And I gave you six scientific historical reasons. Do you remember that? Say yes if you were here. <laughs> and so one of those reasons was that there is, out of the 66 books, there's about 40 or 45 different authors, maybe even more depending on the Psalms and who wrote each of the Psalms. But throughout history, people have sat down and wrote books that ended up being in the Bible, and then it's one congruent message that God's word is literally upon this book because the people have the same message throughout, and it's one consistent story of God's redeeming work in history. So the Bible is cool. The Bible is amazing. In, uh, just uh, to let you know, in 367 A.D., Athanasius wrote a letter that had all the books of the Bible written out, like in, in the way that they exist today. And so you can't say that, oh, the, the Bible took so long to come together. It came together really quick, maybe just 200 years after uh, the Bible was totally written, that all the books were already had been set, and Athanasius was just writing down a list of these books. 
the Council of Hippo, that that's the council that I mentioned that said, yes, these are the books, was 393. Just in case some of you like those kinds of details. I like those kinds of things because I like to learn. <laughs> and I know all of you do too. And so the Bible, this month we're talking about Bible conundrums, difficult and hard passages. And so as we look at these, some of you might think, wow, the Bible's we're, all we're doing is looking at some weird passages, some mysterious passages. I'm discouraged to read the Bible because the Bible's confusing and weird. I don't want you to get that point. I think the Bible is awesome. It is the Word of God. It speaks to us. Um, sometimes when we expect it, sometimes when we don't expect it, it speaks to us. It speaks to us as if we're just learning new things, even though we've we've read the passage over and over again. Has anyone else felt like that? Like, man, that's good stuff. Of course, we all have. And so <clears throat> I read the Bible every day. Does anyone else read the Bible every single day? I know some people don't. But I made it a habit when I got married to Erica. Um, this, she's my wife. She's back there. Um, when we got married, I heard this stat, this statistic that said that couples that read the Bible and pray every day have a .03% of divorce or something like that. And I thought man, I'm just going to read the Bible to make sure I don't get divorced. <laughs> and so every single day since we've been married, we've been married like three or four months or something. What? Up maybe like 90, maybe almost 100 days. We've not yet missed reading the Bible. And so no matter what happens throughout the day, we will read the Bible every day. Even if when we were on our honeymoon and we didn't even know what day it was, we, had, we were counting 24-hour time periods, and then reading the Bible so we wouldn't miss it. So that we can just, I know it's legalistic, and I know I, I am not going to tell you to read the Bible every single day because that would be legalistic, and, and you're not saved by reading the Bible. But I just say that I want to read the Bible every single day because it speaks to me. And I've also, um, not to brag about what I have done, but to say that I think what I, that I've read the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation I sat down over a course of 40 days. It actually, my goal was to do it in 40 days and 40 nights, just because I think that's cool. <laughs> and so I literally sat down for an hours a day, and I'm a slow reader, and read the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And if I could say, I'm in full-time ministry now, and I know some of you either want to be or are already working at a church or a parachurch organization or want to be missionaries, how many of you would say that you're already are working at, uh, in some sort of ministry? Quite a few of you. I would say that the, if I had to name one thing that, that got me where I am today, I would say going back in my Christian walk, it was, it was when I chose to read, to, to, to have read the entire Bible from cover to cover that I learned so much and that I now got a passion for, for the Bible and had, had went on to school. But I would say that if I had to point to one thing, a turning point in my life that, that led me to full-time ministry, I would say it was reading the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And it's no small thing. It is a huge book. And it's, and it's even bigger because the pages are so thin. Have you ever noticed that? That the pages of the Bible are very thin? It's because it's such a huge book. And if they were regular-sized pages, it would be like this big. It really would be. It's huge. It is no small. If you, if you choose to read the entire Bible, at least plan a half a year to do that. And you're going to have to spend probably an hour every day reading. It's a big deal. But I highly encourage you to do it. It's just 
you, you begin to know where the stories fit into the Bible. You know where Moses and Abraham and David fit. And you're like, oh, all these stories just come together. Trust me, it's pretty cool. It's amazing. And so I have this thing to read for you. I get emails every once in a while that have uh, forwarded stuff. Do you like those sometimes? I hardly ever read them. I wish there was some person that would just send me the good ones. And I could trust them. But you all think you have good ones. And so you all send them to me. And so I get lots of them. But th this is, wonder what would happen if we treated our Bibles like our cell phones. Everybody say, ooh. What if we carried it around in our purses or pockets? What if we turned back to get it if we forgot it? What if we flipped through it several times a day? What if we used it to receive messages from the text? I like that one. What if we treated it like we couldn't live without it? What if we gave it to our kids as gifts? What if we used it as we traveled? What if we used it in case of emergency? What if we upgraded to get the latest version? I like that one too. This is something that makes you go, hmm, where's my Bible? And oh, add one more thing. Unlike our cell phone, we don't ever have to be worry about the Bible being disconnected because God already paid the bill. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And so as we talk about Bible conundrums, um, we talked last week about Peter's denial. Do you remember that? Yes or no? Some of you do. Some of you were here. Some of you were on time last week. In the Bible, in all four Gospels, there is the story of Peter denying Christ three times. Do you know about that story? Jesus says before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And then Peter denies Christ three times to three different people. The problem, the conundrum with this passage that we mentioned last time, and I don't want to re-go over all the details, you could look, look at each of the four Gospels and see that the stories, they don't exactly match up. Peter seems to deny Christ to a girl in one passage first, and then to a group of people, and then to a man. And then in, the, in, in John, it's, it's a different order. And then in Mark, it's a, it's a different group of people. And so it, you just have to look at it and say, well, who exactly did Peter deny Christ to? And then you look even further, and you try to figure out the time, like when Peter denied Christ, and when the rooster crowed, and one says an hour passed, and what you're trying to figure out what happened as far as the time. It honestly doesn't really match up. And so you look at it and you say, man, is, is the story wrong? Is, is there an inconsistency here in the Bible? What the heck is going on? And last time we quickly talked about this, and I hope I didn't stir up some stuff in you that, that you're like, that you started to doubt the Bible. Today we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Um, that when does Peter, if you, if you really look at all these details and try to line up the, the, just the tiny little details of this story, it doesn't seem like they line up perfectly. And so, it's weird, huh? And so, I've heard people say that if you could show me one inconsistency in the Bible, I'll take the Bible and throw it into the trash. And so what I hope you won't do is to take the Bible and throw it into the trash. And I have beautiful, great explanations for this. And it has to do with hermeneutics and exegesis. And so pay very close attention. Peter denies Christ three times. In the ancient world, we have to, we're not, we don't live in the ancient world. I mean, I guess in 2,000 years from now, they will say we're living in the ancient world. But we live in 2007. This is the year of the future, right? Yeah. And so as we look back and look at the Bible, that was 2,000 years ago. And so as you think about 
them trying to write down an account of what time Peter denied Christ? Did they have watches back then? Not really. In fact, no would be a better answer. The, the, the pocket watch, the big old pocket watch that you could carry around, wasn't even invented until 1500s. Even the clocks that you could look and see a clock was invented, uh, I think it was around 500 A.D. That's a long time after Jesus and, and Peter denied Christ. And so they couldn't look at a clock and write down the time. In, in our culture, we like details. We say, if the details are off, then something's wrong with your story. You must be lying. But think about it this way. If, if, Peter, if the main point is that Peter denied Christ, and then at the end of the book of John, Peter is given the opportunity to, say, to tell Christ that he loves him three times. Do you remember that passage? That is what the story is about. That's the truth, that this man named Peter went from denying Christ to, to living for his name and even dying for him. And we talked last week about how he died on a cross upside down for the name of Jesus Christ. That's the story. That's what's so cool. And so the details of when he, uh, when he denied Christ each of the times before a rooster crowed isn't that big of a deal. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's really not that big of a deal. It's a small detail. Let me put it this way. Um, if, if you look outside, if it's in the middle of the night, you look outside your window and there's some lady out there with a baseball bat hitting a car, like the song, the Louisville Slugger, to both headlights. You know what I'm talking about. You look out your window and you see some lady beating up a car. Now you're all singing the song, huh? Um, you, you see this lady beating a car with a baseball bat, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to call the police. So you call the police. They come. They arrest the lady. Uh, she's taken to jail. A couple months later, you're in the courthouse. You're sitting in the witness stand, and, and, the, and the lawyer's playing with you. He's like, so what was, so what was she doing? She, well, she was beating the car with a baseball bat. But it turns out that you didn't see it right. It turns out that, in truth, she was really beating the car with a shovel, wooden handle and a shovel. And you're like, well, I clearly saw my neighbor. I clearly saw this lady, and I think she was beating the car with a baseball bat. But the lawyer says, oh, no, it was a shovel. We have the shovel here. So your story must be off. We should throw the whole case away because your detail is off. Do they do that? No, it's just one little detail, and it might, and, so, and sometimes you just can't see things right. You're like, well, it looked like a shovel. I mean, it looked like a bat at the time. Maybe the song was running through my head, so I just saw a bat, but it was really a shovel. So you don't throw the whole thing out based on a tiny little detail that it was actually a wooden handle of a shovel, not a baseball bat, that you saw your neighbor beating this car with, right? The same thing goes with the Bible, especially because it's an ancient book. It's an ancient time before science, before microscopes, before watches, before telescopes, before even the scientific method, many might argue. And so they're not living in a scientific culture. They're living in a culture based upon the, the ideas of the principles and truths, and, and they're not so caught up into details and, and, and whatnot. And so look at, um, look at, it's a really weird passage that one of you pointed out in um, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. You could actually go there and look at it because it's pretty weird. Proverbs 26, 4, and 5. Okay, Proverbs 26, 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him. 
you, so you think, man, that's okay, that's what I'm supposed to do, not to answer a fool according to his folly, or I'll be like him. And then verse 5, what does it say? It says just the opposite. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. And we look at that, and we giggle, and, and we say something's not right because we look at it with our scientific, um, I'm going to write down a word here. The word is propositional truth. I'm going to erase this beautiful Mill Summer School sign that you all have been enjoying. Uh, the word is propositional. Propositional truth. And this is, uh, this is a, a personality of truth, a, um, a style of getting. I'm not saying that, that, that we, we do worship a God that gives us absolute truth. Some things are absolutely true no matter what. But I believe there's different uh, ways of getting to that truth, different faces of that truth, different um, personalities. And so we live in a culture that is very propositional truth. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. It's so clear. We are very logic. We would say, if someone came up to us and said something weird, um, we would say, well, show me some proof. You know, Show me some proof of that. I'm not going to believe that until you give me some proof. Um, if, if you're in this type of culture, like probably our parents or our teachers probably pulled us aside after we lied <laughs> about something, so, you know, we lied about something, we, we got yelled at. But, and, and, our, and our dad or our, our parents or our uh, teacher pulled us aside and said, don't lie. Lying's not good. Lying leads to other, other, making up more lies, and it leads to really, really bad things. But if you're in an Eastern culture, and so this is the other personality of truth. Eastern truth. And this is just a face of truth or a personality of truth. Um, this is when, if A equals B and B equals C, then C not necessarily equals A. And so if you're living in Israel, uh, you're living in Israel at the, at the time the Proverbs was written, you read this, do not answer a fool according to his folly, and then answer a fool according to his folly, you just look at that and say, hmm, that's good. And then you move on. You're not, you don't giggle. You don't, you don't say, oh, there's something really weird here. There's an inconsistency here. You just say, hmm, that's good. And then you think to yourself, yeah, you really can't win when you're talking to a fool, is what I get out of it. And I think that's what, that's what you have to get out of it because it was written in an Eastern type of truth. And so to go back to the don't tell lies thing, if in our culture, at some point in our life, a teacher or a parent or someone, if, we, if we're, I, I kind of lied a lot as a kid. I don't know why. I was into that. Um, my dad was constantly telling me not to lie and how lying leads into more lying. I've, I've gotten over that, by the way. That was like when I was five. But if I was living in Israel and, and, and at this time, my dad probably would have told me the story of the boy who cried wolf. And he might have made that story very personable. He said, well, when I was a kid, there was this other kid in my town, a friend of mine, and he was, he was out by the sheep. And he screamed one day that there was a wolf out there. And everybody ran out and, took, and tried to find the wolf. And the whole town was in a scurry. And the kid was, thought that was pretty funny. And he did it again the next week. And then there was a real wolf out in the fields next to the sheep. And the boy cried wolf once again. But this time, my friend died because he got eaten by the wolf. The dad might tell the boy that story. And the, even though the dad just made up that story, or uh, just retold that story. He was telling it in a personal way 
that the kid wasn't going to think, oh, did that really happen? He was just saying, man, I am never going to lie again. I said, because I don't want to get eaten by a wolf. And so, and so these are just two, this is the Eastern type of, of the personality of truth is okay with details not lining up because it's an ancient culture before science, before wristwatches. You get it? Do you get where I'm coming from? And so um, to, look at, um, to look at the Bible in this way, we need two things, and they're, and they're very similar in definition. We need exegesis and hermeneutics. Have you heard those words before? What those words are about, exegesis and hermeneutics, exegesis is what the text actually says. Exegesis, what the text actually says. And so when I was at Fuller getting my master's degree in theology, I took an exegesis course, and that class was all about getting into the Greek of the New Testament and the Hebrew of the Old Testament to say what, what it's really saying, the exact words that should be uh, translated into English. And then I took another class called uh, New Testament Hermeneutics, where we looked at hermeneutics is what it means, what the text means. Hermeneutics, what the text means. And so when I was in my hermeneutics class at Fuller Seminary, we talked about the culture at the time that the Bible was written, the Old Testament culture and then the New Testament culture. And some of the things that don't really make sense to us probably made sense to them because the Bible is not written to us, it's written for us. Do you see that quote in there? The Bible's not written to us, it's written for us. And so I think that is really how we need to look at the Bible, that literally some of these books were written to specific people. The book of Galatians, was that written to New Life Church 2007? No, that was written to the churches that meet at, uh, what did I just say? Galatia in around the year like 50 AD. It's not written specifically to us, but ladies and gentlemen, it is the word of God. It has truth in these words. And as a church, we've put it in a Bible because, and we put it in this book as the canon because it speaks to us. But we can't just open it up and say, okay, you know, we take this little thing that says, wow, that, that looks kind of harsh. Let's implement that. We can't just take things out directly. We have to say, okay, pretend we're in Galatia. What does our culture look like? What does that time period look like? What are we doing? And so how do we translate that in that time? And then how do we translate it here today for us? And so that's why I think a study Bible is the best Bible you can buy with your money. There's lots of different types of Bibles out there. If you have a Devo Bible, a devotional Bible, that's totally okay. Don't let me make fun of you. Um, but I think the best kind of Bible is the Bible like mine. And my, when I was in high school, I became a Christian in 10th grade. My youth pastor, I was going to go out to the store and buy a Bible, saved up some money. It was like 40 bucks. Uh, walked down to the bookstore, and uh, my youth pastor told me, just get the NIV study Bible. And so I did that. I got the NIV study Bible. And now I realize why the study Bible is so sweet. Because at the bottom of any page, there are notes down here, uh, commentary on the scripture. Because the Bible's not written for us, it's written to us. I mean, take that, rewind, reverse it, play it back. The Bible's not written to us, it's written for us. And so for that reason, have you ever been reading the Bible and you come to a passage, and you're like, well, that's weird. What does that even mean? If you have a study Bible or a commentary, a commentary is a whole book or sets of books that go along with the Bible, 
and help you interpret it, help you do hermeneutics and exegesis. And this is kind of, instead of carrying around the Bible and a whole other book, or they have, have you ever seen a whole shelf of commentaries? Some of you probably have. Instead of carrying around your Bible and a whole shelf of commentaries and like a little, uh, never mind, and like a little wheel thing, um, instead of doing that, and like, because I like to read the Bible at, at my desk sometimes or at church or in bed, instead of reading the Bible, having the book, and then all these commentaries in the bed too, um, it's nice to just have the study Bible. And it has all the commentary in it so that you can think about, oh, what, okay, what is this actually saying? What is this actually, what, what was going on here? You could look at some of the commentary. And so even, and there's another tool that can help you. It's called a concordance. You know what a concordance is? Have you ever used a, it's a, no, it's not like the dictionary. It's like, uh, close though. It's a, it's a book that has all the words in the Bible listed. And so you can see every single time a certain word is listed in the Bible. I have one in the back of this Bible. It's, a, it's an abbreviated one. There's exhaustive concordances that have every single word in the Bible um, that have ever been listed. There's even online ones. And so you go online, you type in a word. Like let's say you've been coming to New Life Church for a little while, and you keep hearing about tongues. And you're like, what the heck is tongues? I've heard about it. I've read some passages about tongues. But what really is it, this prayer language thing? You could go to a concordance. You can go to BibleGateway.com, type in the word tongues, and then it'll give you every single time the word tongues is in the Bible. And so you could read all those verses. And if you really want to have fun, like I do sometimes, you type in the word the, and you hit enter, and you see all the times in the entire Bible, whatever version you pick, the word the is in the Bible. That's a good time right there. And so there's tools to help you study the Bible because it's not written to us. It's written for, dang it, I did it again. It's not written for us. No, it's not written to us. It's written for us. Man, I need some help today. I think I'm a little tired. How many of you were at the uh, Mill Outreach Day yesterday? Wasn't that fun? I'm all, I'm really tired. I was like shoveling rocks for like maybe an hour. (laughs) And I'm tired. I'm sore. It was really fun. In fact, in the service today, when, when we all go into service after Sunday school, I think uh, Ross is going to use the video clip of the night, yesterday, 9 o'clock news, Fox 21 was there, and they did an article, and so you might see, if you were there, you might see yourself. It's pretty sweet, huh? Yes. All right. Um, let's see. Let's look at two conundrums. Are you okay with that? Are you, are you holding on? Um, I, I'm, what I'm saying may, if you've never looked at the Bible critically, if, if you've always just read the Bible for what it is, you pick it up, you start reading, you say, God, speak to me, that, and that's where, that's where a lot of you probably are. If you've never looked at the Bible critically, this may be a very, very, very challenging um, Sunday school month for you. But I hope to explain myself well, and I hope to explain how amazing scripture is. So let's look at two conundrums. First one in, um, I guess the first one, now hold on. Yeah, let's look at the first one. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. And I point this one out to kind of make you laugh. Because the Bible, uh, someone asked me once, someone kind of uh, tricked me and said, Joe, is the Bible all true? And I said, oh yeah, the Bible's, the Bible's 100% true. And then he said, well, then why does the Bible record lies? 
And I was like, what? And then he showed me this verse, and, and it says, uh, it's the serpent talking, and we know from the rest of the Bible that the serpent is, in fact, Satan. <laughs> so he doesn't always speak the truth. And so Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 says, you will not, they're talking about eating of the fruit, and then the serpent says, you will not surely die, said the serpent, uh, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Is that true? Wait. No, you know, it's not. Satan lied. The serpent lied. If you eat of the fruit, you will die. And so I, I say this not to get, get your mind all tangled up in it, whether it's true or not true. It's just to say that the Bible is not written like a Chinese proverb book that, that says, you will have good fortune if you seek knowledge. You will do that. If you do this, you'll do that. If, if <laughs> you know the fortune cookie stuff, right? There, there's the Chinese proverb book. The Bible isn't written like that, where everything is just truths, and you're just reading along, you're like, this is true, this is true, this is true. The Bible is, in fact, stories, and the Bible's not written like just a systematic theological textbook of trying to explain everything. The Bible's poetry. If it's all taking, taken extremely literal, then it just can't be. I mean, there's poetry in there. There's passages that are clearly exaggerations, and they're supposed to be exaggerations. There's passages about parables, and... Um, just things that are not supposed to be taken literally. And so I show you that passage, hopefully to make you laugh, not to make you think like, whoa, is that, what's going, what do you mean it's not true? Did that not happen? No, it's, it's just a, it's a lie that's been recorded down. And so look at, um, this, this one will really, this one we'll spend some time on. It'll mess with your head a little bit. Matthew 13. Is it okay if I mess with your head? <laughs> some of you are like, I don't know. It's going to be brutal. Matthew 13, 31. If you have the NASB, um, the, NI, the, N, the NIV is a usually a phrase-by-phrase phrase, um, or idea-by-idea or, or idea interpretation. The NASB, I'm going to read from that this morning, just because it's, it's more literal, word-for-word. Word. It doesn't mean it's better. It just means it's more word-for-word. Word. In fact, it's usually harder to read, so I always recommend the NIV because it's easier to read. It's Jesus talking. Jesus presented another parable to them saying the kingdom of <coughs> excuse me the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field sowed means planted <laughs> and this is smaller than all other seeds but when it is full grown it is the is the largest the it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so you read that and say man that's 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 sweet He's talking about faith, and he's talking about prayer, how this tiny little seed, which is so amazing, can become this full-grown tree. That your little prayer, that you just asking God for something, or, or praising God, this tiny little thing that you can do, grows up and is this huge tree. That's the principle of truth, right? Yes, it is. Some of you may look at that and say, wait a minute, I took biology. Wait a minute, I took botany. Wait a minute, I have a microscope in my bedroom, and I like to look at it all the time. <laughs> that was me in college, by the way. Um, <clears throat> I had a microscope in my, in my room. And um, you have seen seeds smaller than mustard seeds with your own eyes, like myself. And so you look at this passage, and you say, wait a minute, Jesus just said, literally, and in the NASB, it's just extremely clear, and if you look at the Greek, you cannot get away from the fact 
that Jesus says that the mustard seed is smaller than all other seeds. It's not true, though. The mustard seed is not smaller than all other seeds. I've seen orchid seeds with my own eyes that are, in fact, smaller than the mustard seed. Everybody say, hmm. We have to do, we have to hold to the principles of exegesis and hermeneutics. Who was Jesus talking to in this passage? He was talking to a group of people around, if I just had to throw out a guess, around maybe 30 A.D. or something like that. How many years is that before the microscope was invented? Were they looking through the microscope? No, it wasn't until maybe 1,500 years after Christ said this that we would see a seed smaller than that. He's talking to people that, that if you said, hey, what's the smallest seed? They would say a mustard seed. Hey, what do you think the smallest seed is? Duh, mustard seed. They're, they're, Jesus is talking to a group of people that clearly thought the, the smallest seed was the mustard seed. If I asked some of you what the smaller seed was, most of you would go, what? I don't know. And so Jesus wouldn't tell that parable if he was alive today. I mean, he's alive today, but he's not on earth. You know what I'm saying, right? Don't, don't get all theological on me. And so Jesus is telling this parable to people that, that I mean, it's just duh. The smallest seed is the mustard seed. They all work with their hands. Most of them are farmers. They have all planted gardens before. How many, how many of you have ever planted a garden? None of you. Don't raise your hand. None of you have planted gardens. <laughs> we don't know about seeds. They knew about seeds. They knew about mustard seeds. And so Jesus is just clearly portraying the message that you take a small thing like a mustard seed, like faith, like the small little prayer that, that's muttered, and it'll grow up and be a huge thing. It'll be this huge tree. Wow, that's what God is like. That is the message. And so is this a big deal? That, I mean, if you look at the entire Bible, and if you try to find as many conundrums as you can, you're only going to find a few. And, and like this one, it's small. It's easily explained away. Well, duh, Jesus was talking to some people that there was the smallest seed was the mustard seed to them. He was making a point about faith. And so everyone turned to your neighbor and say, that's not a big deal. And so I hope that I just showed you that, and, and I'm going to say that that's an error. Everybody look up here as I do this. You know what that means? And I don't even know what that means. I just, I've just seen people do it too, and I, I do it as well. And so I'm going to call that an error. Is it tiny? Yeah. Is it easily explained away? Yeah. Duh. I mean, Jesus was talking to people that clearly thought the mustard seed was the smallest seed. He's making a point about faith. He's not writing a text on botany. And so the, the error that, that is here is just so tiny. I mean, you think about this entire book and how um, historically accurate it is, and you, you should be blown away by its accuracy in history give you one more that has more to do with history and it has to do with um, two different passages turn to first to second sam second samuel 24 9 second sam 24 9 and then i'm going to compare it to first chronicles and if you've never read these books before and in fact if you've never um, spent a lot of time in the bible these are not the books to pick up first and start reading because there's some really fun books in the in the bible and then there's some books that will probably confuse you and honestly, in my opinion, at least bore you a little bit. Um, but there's still truth in them 
Remember last week I talked, let me, let me clarify. Remember last week I talked about how reading the Bible is sometimes like a jack-in-the-box, and sometimes you're just spinning the wheel waiting for something to happen, and then, bam, <laughs> the, the, the jack comes out, and you're like, wow, God just touched me with this amazing word from himself, and I didn't expect it. And so I think in the books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, you'd have to do a lot more turning to get to those points. And so, anyways, uh, 2 Sam 24.9 says, I mean, this is pretty random. Joab gave the number of his registration of the people to the king. There were in Israel 800,000 valiant men. I'm going to put that number up here. 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judea were 500,000 men. Okay, so plus 500,000 500, men um, in Judea. And, and so you're like, okay, that's cool. That's just a number. What are you showing me this for? And then the story of 2 Samuel is retold in the books of First and Second Chronicles. And so if you look at those books, sometimes the exact numbers of things don't comply exactly. And so let me show you. 1 Chronicles 21, 5. 1 Chronicles 21, 5. If you turn there, it's the same story kind of being retold, and the numbers are a little different. Starts off the same. Joab gave the number of the census of all the people to David, and all in Israel there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Ju uh, Judea there was four thousand. 470,000 men who drew the sword. Are those numbers the same? No, they're, they're off by a little bit. Huh. Everybody say, what? <laughs> and so I show you this to say that that seems to me like an inconsistency in the Bible. And here's how. It, it, we always have to go back to the exegesis, the hermeneutics. We have to realize that how do you count to a million? Is counting to a million a big deal? Yes, it is. If there was a million people in here and we were counting them, just one every second saying one. Okay, now you go outside. We counted you. Two, three, one every second. You know what a million seconds looks like? I wrote it down because I uh, can't calculate these things in my head. It's 305 hours. It would literally take 12.7 days to count a million people at one person per second. Are these exact numbers anyways? No. I mean, how many, I mean, even in our age, in 2007, you would literally have to line people up and feed them for 12 days in order to count them and have an exact, accurate count of these people. Could it be done today? I don't even know that it could. I mean, what if one guy goes to Chick-fil-A to get, to get some lunch and then doesn't get counted? Your number's off. Right? And so you can't, I mean, just think about doing this in the ancient times. The idea here is that there was a ton of dudes at, that were ready to fight. And the idea that, that, wow, Israel had a lot of dudes. That's the point. It's not to say that these two things are inconsistent and that you just have to throw out the Bible because there's a small inconsistency there. Have you seen these kinds of things before? Some of you maybe have. Some of you are like, wow, this is really weird. I've never seen this before. I've always heard if there's an inconsistency in the Bible, I'll throw it in the trash. <laughs> and I've heard people say that. And, and it's not the way we're supposed to read the Bible. I think that the Word of God, next week I'm going to talk about its infallibility. 
that it's, it goes without falseness. That in speaking truths, it's without falseness. And what's so amazing about the Bible is that, wow, we have a book that, I mean, this passage, I'm just going to throw out a number, maybe 3,000 years old about the Chronicles thing. Maybe less than that. Maybe 2,500 or more years old. And here we have an exact account of some people that were in Israel and a pretty close number to the idea that there were a lot of dudes here in this old, old um, ancient world. And so the big point, and I hope you come for the rest of the month because I'm showing the, you these errors, and I'm putting it in quotations again. I'm showing you these inconsistencies, and they're right here. You just saw them with your own eyes, right? Everybody say, yeah, yeah, I saw it. And so the Bible, I mean, those things are small, right? I mean, who cares if Jesus was talking to people and used terms that they would understand? Who cares? That, I mean, no one actually sat down and took 12 days to count a million plus men, right? They were just given a number, like, yeah, we counted them in huge groups, and maybe we're a little off. You know what a million looks like? It looks like a lot, and it takes 12 days to count it all. I mean, wow, just think about that for a second. The idea is that there was a lot of dudes there <laughs> in the Bible, and does that change the fact that Jesus came to the earth to die for our sins, to redeem us, that one, one book says there was this many, another book says there was this many dudes somewhere? It doesn't change. It doesn't rattle my faith to the core. I don't think so. I still will read the Bible every single day with my wife. I will still, at some point, choose to start reading in Genesis and read all the way to Revelation within a year or a half year because it speaks to me. It's the Word of God. And it is amazing to me that in this entire book, you can only find little tiny details that are off in accuracy. And, and you look at them and you're like, really? Who cares? They could be explained away. How can you count to a million? Jesus was talking to people that knew the mustard seed was the smallest. I want to read for you just a short passage before we go in this book. Have you ever seen this? It's called The Heavenly Man. Has anybody read this book? It's about a dude um, in China named Brother Yoon, and he's living in the 1970s. And in the 1970s, China was a bad place to be a Christian. There wasn't as many freedoms. And he writes this passage that I'll never forget about um, getting a Bible for the first time. He immediately looked fearful. This man had already spent nearly 20 years in prison because of his faith. He looked at me and saw that I was young, a poor boy, tattered clothes, bare feet. This is around 1974. He's about 16 years old, writing, or at least in the story here. I felt compassion, but still he did not want to show me his Bible. I don't blame him because in those days there were very few Bibles in the whole of China. No one was allowed to read from any other book other than Mao's Little Red Book. If, I, if, if caught with a Bible, it would be burned and the owner and the entire family would be severely beaten in the middle of the village. The old pastor simply told me, the Bible is a heavenly book. If you want one, you need to pray for God, to God to, that he will provide one. Only he can provide this heavenly book. God is faithful. He always answers those that seek him with all their heart. I fully trusted the pastor's words. When I returned home, I had just one prayer. Lord, please give me a Bible. Amen. At that time, I didn't know how to pray, but I continued to pray like this for one month, and nothing happened. A Bible didn't appear. I went back to the pastor's house. This time, I went alone. I told him, I prayed to God according to your instructions, but I have, still haven't received a Bible. I want one very much. Please, please show me your Bible. Just a glance of it, and I will be satisfied. 
I don't need to touch it. You hold it. I will be content just to look at it. And if I could just possibly copy down some words, I would happily return home. The pastor saw the anxiety in my heart, but he spoke to me again. If you're serious, you should kneel down and pray to the Lord. You should also fast and weep. The more you weep, the sooner you'll get a Bible. I went home every morning, every afternoon. I ate nothing. I, every evening I ate just one small bowl of steamed rice. I cried. I was a hungry child to his heavenly fa- father wanting to be filled with his word. For the next 100 days I prayed for a Bible until I could bear it no more. My parents were sure I was losing my mind. Imagine a 16-year-old kid. Looking back years later, I would say that this whole experience was the most difficult thing I would ever endure. Then suddenly one morning at 4 a.m., after months of begging God to answer my prayers, I received a vision from the Lord while kneeling beside my bed. In the vision, I was walking up a steep hill trying to push a heavy cart in front of me. I was headed towards a village where I intended to, to beg for food with my family. I was struggling greatly because in my vision I was hungry and weak and constantly on a fast. The old cart was about to roll back and fall on me. Then I saw three men walking down the hill in an opposite direction. A kind old man with very long beard was pulling a large cart full of fresh bread. Two other men were walking on each side of the cart. One of the old men uh, that seemed to have great pity on me showed compassion. He asked, are you hungry? I replied, yes, I have nothing to eat. I'm on my way to get food for my family. I wept because my family was extremely poor. Because of my father's sickness, we sold everything to buy medicine. I had very little to eat, and for years I was forced to beg for food from friends and neighbors. When the old man asked if I was hungry, I couldn't um, even cry. I never felt such love and compassion from anyone before. In the vision, the old man took a red bag of bread from his trolley and asked his two servants to give me some. And he said, you must eat it immediately. I opened and wrapped and, unsaw, and saw that there was a fresh baked bread inside. And I put the bun in my mouth, and instantly it turned into a Bible. This is in his vision. Immediately in my vision, I knelt down with my Bible, and I cried to the Lord in thanksgiving. Lord, your name is worthy to be praised. You didn't despise my prayer. You allowed me to receive the Bible. I want to serve you for the rest of my life. I woke up uh, and started searching, searching the house for my Bible. The rest of the family was asleep. The vision had been so real to me that, I real, that, that it was amazing that I realized it was just a dream. My parents rushed to my room to see what had happened. They thought I had gone crazy because of all of my fasting and praying. I told them about my vision, but the more I shared, the crazier they thought I was. Mother said, the day hasn't done yet, and no one has come to our house. The door is firmly locked. My father held me tightly with tears in my eyes. He cried to God, dear Lord, have mercy on my fun- son. Don't let him lose his mind. I will be willing to be sick again if it will prevent my son from losing his mind. Please give my son a Bible. My mom, my father all knelt down, and we wept to get together. Suddenly I heard a faint knock at the door, a very gentle voice, uh, a very gentle knock. I rushed over through the door and unlocked it. Are you bringing me bread? This gentle vo- <laughs> He asked, and a gentle voice replied, Yes, we have uh, fresh bread to give you. Immediately I recognized the voice the same one that I heard from the vision. I opened the door, and there standing before me were the same two servants I had seen in the vision. One man handed me a red bag. My heart raced as I opened the bag and held my very own Bible. Two men quickly departed into the darkness. I clutched my new Bible to my heart, fell down on my knees next to the door. I thanked God again and again and promised Jesus 
from that moment on, I would devour this word like a hungry child. Later, I found the names of the two men. One of them was Brother Wang, and the other was Brother Soon. They, gave, they came from a faraway village. They told me about an evangelist whom I had never met. He had, severe, he had severely terrible dreams from the Lord during the, the Cultural Revolution and nearly died from being tortured. Um, after about three months, I received my Bible from this evangelist. After three months, uh, he received a vision. God showed I, that a young man was in need of a Bible and a vision. And he, and he said he talked about their house, and he talked about the village where this young boy was that needed a Bible, that God gave him a vision to go give this boy a Bible. Isn't that cool? It's a cool story. And so as Americans, we got Bibles everywhere. I mean, all of us probably own a Bible, maybe a couple of them. And if you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible sitting on the table that you could write your name in and have. And I think sometimes we take it for granted that there's people in the world that don't get to read the Bible like we do. And so, man, the Bible's sweet, don't you think? All right, let's pray real quick. God, we just thank you for your word to us, that as we read the Bible, it is infallible. It is without falseness. It shows your truth of how you redeemed humans into being one with you. And just we get to fall more and more in love with you by reading your words that have been handed down throughout history. And we just thank you so much, Jesus, that your book is alive. It's real to us. And Jesus, we just praise you for that. We just ask you to make us hungry for your word, like maybe this man in China was. Hungry like bread, that we might just eat this bread, that we might just know your word and be filled up by your word as in, in the Bible. And we just thank you and praise you. And everybody said, amen.